0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Amol. How are you? I'm doing really well. Took me a second there to remember what program I'm in. That's probably a bad sign. You're uh, reaching that twilight of your of your training you're you're starting to check out (laughs) i'm already so far gone uh all right well let's see if we can pull things back together and talk about two really interesting studies this week first we're going to talk about a new therapy for preventing post-operative dvts and then we're going to talk about intra-arterial treatments for stroke And of course, as always, we will wrap up our episode today with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So let's get started. Talk to me about DVTs, post-op DVTs, and this new approach to treating them or preventing them.
1: The article that I'm going to talk about is called Factor 11 Antisense Oligonucleotide for Prevention of Venous Thrombosis. Now, Mo, you may be asking yourself, why is Nathan talking about this? when we have Travis Murdoch, our molecular biology guru, on staff. And that's a question I asked myself when you sent me this article.
0: So I have a a question for you. Do you know what antisense even means? That is a profound question, and I'm going to assume that you know the answer to that question. So I'll leave it to you.
1: Yeah, so my pleasure, Amol. Thanks for uh, asking me to clarify that. Of course, uh, you may recall from molecular biology that uh, the term sense is used when... uh, A DNA sequence or a nucleotide sequence is made to match a particular uh, piece of RNA or DNA. And the opposite of that, the matched pair, is called the antisense. So when they're speaking about RNA, where you have a just a single strand of oligonucleotides, the antisense is the matching pair. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. So this is a uh, novel way of preventing uh, DVTs and pulmonary emboli. In uh, orthopedic surgery patients that used this strategy to try and uh, prevent the transcription of one of the coagulation cascade clotting factors factor 11 and through some uh, basic science uh, experiments that these authors uh, review in some detail there is a suggestion that inhibiting factor 11 could uh, decrease the rates of thrombosis without actually uh, increasing the rates of bleeding making it an attractive therapeutic target so this study was an industry sponsored open-label Randomized controlled trial, uh, comparing two different doses of a, of a novel agent called factor 11 anti, uh, oligonucleotide, creative name, FXIASO for short, with subcutaneous enoxaparin, which I think, uh, would be considered the standard of care. And their main outcomes were rates of, uh, venous thromboembolism and also bleeding. So the enoxaparin was given either the night before or the night after the operation and continued for eight days post-operatively. And the dosing schedule for this novel agent was a fair bit more complicated. They received a, a total of eight doses of the, of the drug prior to surgery and a ninth dose on the third post-operative day. So this requires, uh, obviously, scheduling around a known elective surgical date. And the way that they measured their, their primary outcome of uh, VTE was to perform venography on all the patients to determine whether they had an asymptomatic clot, and they also documented the rates of symptomatic DVTs.
0: And the venography was performed at 8 to 12 days, right, Nathan?
1: That's right, a They measured that primary outcome 8 to 12 days postoperatively. So they randomized 300 patients into these uh, three different groups, and the results are pretty impressive. The rates of DVT on venography was 4% in the high dose of the novel agent, 27% in the low dose, and 30% in the enoxaparin group. They also looked at the rates of clinically significant bleeding, which they defined as a 20% drop, sorry, a 20 point drop in hemoglobin or a requirement for two units of red blood cells. And the rates of clinically significant bleeding were 2% and 3% in the uh, low and high doses of the uh, novel agent and 8% in the inoxaparin group. So substantially lower.
0: So what do you think, Amol? So I think this is a pretty impressive finding. So you said that it's 30% incidence of Uh, DVT in the control group, in the anoxaparin group, or the usual care group, and then in the patients that were treated with the new agent, with the high dose of the new agent, it was 4%. So that's a difference of 26% and a number needed to treat of about 4, which is pretty impressive. I agree. No question. A compelling result. I think so, um, which is why we're talking about it here on the rounds table, only the finest of the finest. That's how you get into the New England Journal.
1: Number or the rounds table. table. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's, I know that that's what these authors were shooting for. But let's dissect some of the methodological issues here. So you spoke about one of them already, which is that the dosing of this medication had to begin about 36 days preoperatively. And obviously that poses a challenge for any kind of acute surgery, right?
1: Right. Or any kind of uh, acute uh, inpatient medicine population who also generally are given, uh... VTE prophylaxis. So, certainly, uh, at least in the way that this drug is delivered now, that's uh, a limitation. That being said, uh, I think the results are compelling enough that in a patient population where uh, elective surgery is being uh, planned, there may be a future role for something like this.
0: Yeah, and presumably the reason that it had to be given preoperatively is I guess it takes some time for the agent to work given that it's working on a, a molecular genetic mechanism. Maybe now is a, a decent time to pause and just talk about how exactly it works. So you schooled me on sense and anti-sense oligonucleotides, but how exactly does this antisense oligonucleotide work?
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to uh, preface my comments by saying that I'm essentially looking at the nice cartoon that is uh, included in the article. And basically, they uh, administer this drug which through the magic of drug delivery is, uh, makes its way into the nucleus of cells where it then binds directly to the mRNA that it is going to be making factor 11, and that inhibits its translation. That's what all I can really tell you.
0: Yeah, and I guess the major point here is that when mRNA is double-stranded, it gets degraded. It gets degraded by other enzymes. So by adding a second string of oligonucleotides to it it triggers it for degradation and i guess it acts in the liver which is where factor 11 is made like most of the uh, clotting
1: factors that's right so yeah i mean you're you're perhaps looking at the same diagram as i am maybe our readers will be interested to know that the enzyme that degrades double-stranded rna is called rna's h1
0: well nathan i am indeed Interested to know that. Thanks for sharing. So let's talk about some of the other practicalities then that, that result from the fact that you have to start the treatment early uh, and preoperatively. So this means that the patients are anticoagulated during the surgery. So what are the implications there?
1: Well, to be honest, there's, I don't think any real implications there. I wouldn't say that they're anticoagulated. They're on prophylactic doses of anticoagulation. And we give prophylactic doses within an hour of incision for elective surgery all the
0: time. That's totally right. Um, Let's talk about their primary outcome and whether we have any qualms with that. So they performed venography on all patients, which is similar for most uh, DVT trials. Uh, But the event rates that they report are a little bit higher, I would say, than than some of the other trials. So other DVT trials with venography get event rates somewhere around 15 to 20%. And here we're talking about 30% in the control group so a relatively high event rate and then more importantly the major difference in the groups was really driven by asymptomatic uh, dvts right so of all of the events only about three out of 60 total events uh, were symptomatic dvts and even of those they were largely distal rather than proximal dvts so the clinical significance of these findings are a little bit unclear, right?
1: Right. So, you know, this is a study that only included 300 patients, which I think for a lot of the, uh, which is a small number, I think, in order to find a a high rate of clinically significant um, VTEs. I mean, I think the reason why we worry so much about this is that we have so many patients coming through the hospital that even with a low event rate, we we see it, you know, frequently in uh, certainly the post-operative setting. Uh, They still showed, you know, a significantly probably not statistically significantly uh, decreased in, in proximal deep vein thromboses, you know, only one in the high-dose group compared to seven in the low-dose group and four in the enoxaparin group. So, I mean, there's a sort of suggestion that their effect is seen in the more clinically significant types of VTEs that they specifically looked at. But I completely agree with you that, you know, this is, if anything, a sort of Preliminary suggestion of what might be an exciting novel way to provide VTE prophylaxis in our patients. It's, but I don't think that the data in this study, uh, and the, the size of the population studied gives us any kind of data to, to, you know, roll this out, uh, you know, tomorrow.
0: Right. Yeah. And I guess that's reflected in the fact that this is a phase two randomized trial, right? So, there's still, we will see, I guess what we're, what this tells us is that we will see in the next probably three to five years, a phase three study where there will be thousands of patients and, uh, right. And you, know, and, you know, maybe
1: this is the type of study since they showed, you know, that it's relatively safe. The adverse reactions are really limited to uh, uh, injection site reactions, which were described as you know tolerable, only two patients discontinued use of the drug of the, of the 200 that were on it, uh, which is a, a pretty low, uh, rate. And there were no, uh, significant, you no know, clinically significant adverse events or mortalities. And, uh, I think using it in a, uh, in a population that includes epidural analgesia, if the uh, rates of bleeding is actually less is probably safe. So I think this gives them likely a lot of, uh, the data that they would need to conduct a large scale phase three trial.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then I guess some of the other points that we haven't discussed yet are the cost of this drug. Do we know anything about that? It's probably a little early in its development. They
1: don't mention it at all.
0: Yeah, it's too early
1: but, in its development. Uh, I, I, I did look at the cost of the uh, stock of the company that makes it and its trend <laughs> over time. And I think, unfortunately, we missed the boat. And uh, this uh, this uh, company, Isis Pharmaceuticals, has gone from in 2011 about 15 bucks 10 bucks all the way up to 72 bucks so people are excited about people this people are drug excited about this and other drug another uh, drug that these company this company makes which is a whole series of uh, antisense oligonucleotides so uh, it's one to watch maybe
0: <laughs> thanks thanks for the, the, the so the round's table has deviated into a stock tip uh, financial advice we should make a clear disclaimer that neither that we're probably less qualified to talk about stocks than we are to talk about oligosense, nucleotides. Past
1: performance does not predict future returns. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, I want to talk about one uh, last thing about this topic, and then we'll wrap up. The The main thing I think that's really interesting about this from a scientific point of view is that it challenges a couple of the conventional wisdoms of thrombosis. Right. So the first one, which is is, you know, dogma that we're taught frequently in medical school, and I'm sure doesn't reflect the complexities of, of what scientists actually know about thrombosis, is this notion that uh, tissue injury is what drives the post-operative blood clotting. And specifically, it activates the extrinsic clotting pathway, and you get tissue factor that mediates triggering of the coagulation cascade. When in fact, this therapy really only targets the intrinsic pathway and seems to be quite effective.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think it's fair to say that this type of dogma that you referred to is, that's really all that means is best understanding at the time that, you know, textbooks are written and uh, lecture notes that are continuously uh, given in medical schools, uh, you know, may not be up to date with the most fundamental basic science uh, occurring in this topic. And so the tissue factor from tissue injury activating the extrinsic coagulation cascade is, at least in this study, the way that they've uh, diagrammed it, some type of release of, uh, uh, oligonucleotides that trigger the intrinsic pathway that also occurs in tissue damage. And, uh, that, you know, was not part of the conventional wisdom when we were in medical school, uh, what seems to be an increasing amount of time ago. <laughs> but, uh, obviously they've come up with this. Strategy that uh, has a, a, a sounds like a very a robust basic science uh, uh, underpinning, and that seems to be clinically effective at least with this soft outcome that we talked about of uh, asymptomatic VTEs on uh, on venography.
0: Right, and yeah, probably the more the most interesting and exciting clinical outcome here is this. The other sort of conventional wisdom in thrombosis, which is that thrombosis and bleeding exist in opposite worlds and so you can reduce thrombosis but that will increase bleeding or you can have less bleeding but you will have increased thrombosis and somehow this intervention seems to have decoupled the two where you have both reduced thrombosis and reduced bleeding which would be a remarkable finding
1: right and you know who's to say that maybe this uh antisense oligonucleotide strategy won't end up being the ultimate uh strategy for factor uh, 11 inhibition but maybe the main exciting part of this study is just uh, just that that factor 11 inhibition is a is a drug target and you know this company happens to use antisense oligonucleotides as their as their that's what they do maybe there'll be other ways of inhibiting factor 11 uh in the future that could also have this effect
0: okay sounds good so to summarize it seems like we're both pretty excited about factor 11 antisense oligonucleotides as a potential therapeutic target but we're a little bit too late to the party to benefit from it financially. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Okay. Stay in school. (laughs) Stay in school. Keep your day job. All right. Why don't we wrap up (laughs) and move on to our next topic? Okay. So I want to talk about a new approach to treating stroke, intra-arterial treatment, and the results of a new trial called the Mr. Clean trial.
1: What do you mean by intraarterial treatment? Is that really new? Isn't TPA intraarterial treatment?
0: So in a sense, TPA is actually systemic treatment. It's a systemic thrombolytic treatment that is in fact not intraarterial. It's intravenous TPA and then it goes around the whole circulation and it does act in the arteries. But when we talk about intraarterial treatment, we're really talking about three different modalities. The first is that all involve catheterizing the arteries. So the first is local administration of a thrombolytic like TPA to dissolve the clot via a catheter that's close to that artery. The second is clot retrieval with a mechanical device. Oh, there's only two ways. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not so good at counting. Uh,
1: so we're not talking about an intravenous bolus of TPA. We're talking about something in the interventional neuroradiology suite where they're actually catheterizing the cerebral circulation.
0: Yes, exactly. And the reason that this is thought to have potential therapeutically is because first TPA has a relatively narrow time window when given intravenously, right? So now we're talking about about four and a half hour time window from symptom onset. The second is that there are many contraindications to tpa which uh, limit the number of people who can actually get that intervention. And the third is that uh, intravenous or systemic thrombolytics seems to be less effective at opening major blockages of the large blood vessels. So it seems to be more effective at moderate to smaller sized lesions rather than large lesions. And we should I should just take a quick second to note that we're talking about tpa but that's just shorthand for all of the various agents that can be used for thrombolysis. All right, so this was a pragmatic randomized control trial where they compared intraarterial treatment, either the mechanical therapy or the local delivery of thrombolysis, uh, plus usual care versus usual care alone. So basically the addition of the intraarterial treatment. In fact, 90% of the patients in both groups got intravenous thrombolysis. So this was really the addition of this intraarterial therapy. They enrolled patients who needed to have a moderate degree of neurological dysfunction, dysfunction as a result of the stroke. So they had a score of at least two on the NIH stroke scale. And importantly, all of the patients had to have a radiologic diagnosis of occlusion of one of the major arteries. Patients were randomized to this intra-arterial therapy if it was within six hours of symptom onset, so a longer window than the 4.5 hours of TPA. So they enrolled 500 patients at 16 centers in the Netherlands, and they found that in the treatment group, in the intra-arterial treatment group, there were more patients who were functionally independent at 90 days follow-up. So in the treatment group, 33% thirty three percent were functionally independent, whereas in the control group, nineteen percent were functionally independent, which is a number needed to treat of seven patients to improve functional independence. And all of their various clinical and imaging secondary outcomes favored the intervention group. So what do you think?
1: Well it certainly seems like a very impressive result. I I guess, you know, you mentioned this is a new treatment, but I, I didn't recall it being that new. I mean since I've been in medical school and in my residency, there are interventional neuroradiologists doing these things. So, what's new about this study?
0: Yeah, so you're absolutely right in the sense that the idea is not new at all. And in fact, we've been trying to study intraarterial treatments for stroke for many years. A couple of things are important. One is that the original studies of intraarterial treatment were compared to patients who did not receive thrombolysis. And they showed benefit, but they weren't compared to the standard of care. So that's not that compelling, right? The second set of studies using intraarterial treatments actually were negative. They didn't show that the studies, that the intervention was beneficial. So what's different about this step? So there's a few differences. The first is that in some of the original studies, they had a pretty narrow window in the time between patients receiving thrombolysis and patients receiving the intraarterial treatment meaning so for example in one of the big studies it had to be that you you would receive the intraarterial treatment within 40 minutes of getting your thrombolysis now that's important because in this study where they didn't have such a requirement they could actually assess whether patients had a good response to the thrombolysis alone and then exclude those patients from this trial the other things that the older studies didn't do is they didn't do pre-treatment imaging to confirm a large clot so something like half of the patients in the previous studies didn't have angiographic imaging to say where the blood clot was and you mean uh, CT angiographic yeah imaging, exactly right? exactly and so that's another thing that this trial did was focused on the patients who had those large bl- blood clots and were likely to benefit from this intervention though the, there's one other point about the Difference from previous studies that is important, which is that in this trial, they used a large number of latest generation stents, uh, which were, which are retrievable stents, which are probably superior to the first generation of stents. So basically the original stents, and this is obviously way outside of my area of expertise. So this is based on the little reading I did around it, but the early generation of stents Um, were actually sort of corkscrew clot removal devices or stents that you could leave in. The latest generation of stents are actually retrievable, which is that you put in the stent, it pops open, and it actually traps the clot within the struts of the stent. So it reopens the blood vessel, and then later you can pull out the stent and pull out the clot with the stent so that you don't need to necessarily leave in a stent which could, you know, then be prone to getting re-stenosis, which is probably the biggest problem with leaving stents in. That's probably another reason why patients are benefiting in this study as opposed to previous studies, which is that the technology has just improved. So I think the major takeaway point from this study is that this large randomized controlled trial in multiple centers uh, showed that intraarterial treatment using the latest generation of technology uh, was effective and safe when administered within six hours after stroke onset and was in fact superior to standard care with thrombolysis in order to help patients achieve functional independence 90 days after their stroke. Well, it's been a long and winding road through a variety (laughs) of blood-related studies. Why don't we come to our Good Stuff segment?
1: Sounds good. So my good stuff this time is a uh, podcast from the Freakonomics podcast.
0: Uh, wait, wait, wait. You're endorsing another podcast? Is it entitled The Rounds Table and found at healthydebate.ca? It's uh,
1: going to be linked from The Rounds Table <laughs> at healthydebate.ca, which I think makes it uh, of interest to our viewers. I mean, our listeners. <laughs> uh this episode on the Freakonomics podcast was called, uh, Why Doesn't Everyone Get the Flu Vaccine? And it was uh, obviously geared to uh, a lay audience, but it discussed uh, some of the reasons why people don't get the vaccine and incentives to increase vaccine uh, uh, use. Those candy bars that they give out at the hospital are, uh, it's no accident that they're so they're doing that. It seems like even, even doctors respond to those types of incentives, as you might uh, experience for yourself. They also had uh, an interesting tangent on the way that the CIA uh, recruited some vaccine uh, programs in uh, Pakistan to uh, help track down Osama bin Laden, and that effort has resulted in some problems with vaccine programs uh, in that part of the world. So it was was a very interesting uh, episode.
0: Okay, that's a very interesting recommendation. And as much as I gave you a hard time for endorsing another podcast, I'm about to do the same. What? (laughs) Is it the rounds table hosted on (laughs) healthydebate.ca? Well, we will link to it from our own website, so I think it'll be of interest to our listeners. A wise man once told me. Okay, so this is actually a good stuff segment that comes at the recommendation of one of our listeners. So this is a shout out to Andrew, um, who told me about the Wreath Lectures. So this is an annual distinguished lecture series that's hosted by the BBC. And this year, the speaker was the great surgeon, writer, researcher, Atul Gawandi. Um, and you can find it in podcast form, and we'll link to it. So Atul Gawandi gives four lectures about healthcare. The first is about why doctors fail. And he talks about the difference between ignorance, a lack of knowledge, and ineptitude, failure to apply existing knowledge, and how that has implications for medicine. The second lecture is about working in teams and working with complex systems. Uh, and then the third lecture is about aging and dying, and I actually think it's the most poignant of the four, and it draws on some of the content from his latest book, Being Mortal. And then finally, he talks about well-being and population health. And I have to say, the four lectures were really quite a joy to listen to. He's such a wonderful storyteller and a real sort of thought leader in healthcare, so I highly recommend it. Thanks, Emol. I'll definitely check those out. You should. He's an—he's a great surgeon plus, much like yourself. Dave. I'm blushing. <laughs> Alright, uh, it was really great to do this with you and uh, talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure, all Take care. See ya.